Well, good morning. Let's pray. Father, your word says that all scripture is inspired by you and profitable for teaching, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Father, take these few minutes now as we look into your word. And would you do just that in each of our hearts? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, what's it all about? What's Christmas all about? Asking this question brings back the memory of a title of a song with the same words minus the word Christmas. The title of that song, What's It All About, Alfie? Now, if you're under 60, you probably don't remember that song. It came out in 1966. It was composed by Burt Bacharach, who's probably dead by now, and, and Hal David. The lyrics read like this. What's it all about, Alfie? Is it just for the moment we live? What's it all about when you sort it out? Are we meant to take more than we give? Or are we meant to be kind? And if, if only fools are kind, then I guess it is wise to be cruel. And if life belongs only to the strong, what will you lend on an old golden rule? As sure as I believe there's a heaven above, Alfie, I know there's something much more, something even non-believers can believe in. I believe in love, Alfie. Without true love, we just exist. Until you find the love you've missed, you're nothing. When you walk, let your heart lead the way, and you'll find love any day, Alfie. Again, I ask the question, what's Christmas all about? Our neighborhoods and our commercial areas have come alive with gestures alerting us to something special. Colored lights, seasonal songs, trees, and mangers. If an alien landed saw all these gestures, wondered and asked one of us somehow in our native tongue, what's with all the lights? What's with all the songs? What's with all these evergreen trees and manger scenes? We'd know the answer. We'd say it's about Christmas. But what is Christmas all about? That's the question I'd like for us to address this morning. Because if we miss the aboutness of Christmas... Christmas will come and go without impacting our lives. Our hearts will not be stirred. Our minds will only temporarily be filled with familiar sights, sounds, and smells. And then we'll move on to New Year resolutions and dreaming about winter vacations. We dare not let that happen. The stakes are too high. To explore the aboutness of Christmas, 
I want, to look, I want us to look at Psalm 36 this morning. It was written by David, who lived a thousand years before the first Christmas. I believe it's in this psalm that we'll find what Christmas is all about. So let's read it. It should be on the screen. Psalm 36 says this, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God in their eyes. In his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. The words of his mouth are wicked and deceitful. He fails to act wisely or to do good. Even on his bed, he plots evil. He commits himself to a sinful course and does not reject what is wrong. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. The first four verses of this psalm lay out a problem, and the problem is man's sin and specifically his lack of fearing God. We'll title this first section, It's About My Sin, because that, in part, is what Christmas is all about. Look at the latter half of the first verse. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So what does it mean to fear God? Fearing God means having a reverence for God and that that greatly impacts one's life. The fear of God is expressed when we trust Him, when we obey Him, when we submit to His discipline, and when we worship Him in awe. A healthy fear of God does not include being afraid of God. Followers of Jesus Christ need not be scared of God. We have no reason to be afraid of God. It's because we have His promise that nothing can separate us from His love. We have His promise that He'll never leave us or forsake us. However, for the unbeliever, the fear of God is the fear of judgment. So the person who David describes in verse 1 as the one in whom there is no fear of God before his eyes, is has he's jettisoned the notion that there's a God who governs his life. He's dismissed the idea that there's a God who has designed the way life is to be lived. And he's rejected the claim that there's a God who will hold each person accountable to live within that design. In the first four verses of this psalm, David describes this man who has no fear of God. He describes him in four different ways. First, he's a proud man. Not the healthy pride connected to accomplishments, but rather the unhealthy kind of pride. He flatters himself. Look at verse 2. says this, In his own eyes, he flatters himself too much, to detect or hate his sin. Self-flattery 
congratulating ourselves for how good we are compared to others blinds us to our sin. It reminds me of Jesus' parable of the Pharisees and the tax collector. Do you remember that one? Jesus said two men went up to a temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. A classic example of self-flattery. Self-flattery is an expression of sinful pride. It's an expression of no fear of God. A self-flattery removes God from the judgment seat, and then he jumps up onto that seat himself. And as is done in Olympic gymnastics, he holds up a number, judging himself, and that number is consistently a 10. Unhealthy pride places us, places one in a mindset of not fearing God. Second, this man's speech also indicts him as a man who does not fear God. Look at verse 3. The words of his mouth are wicked and deceitful. A wicked and deceitful, wicked and deceitful words flow out of the mouth of a person who is not fearing God. A non-God-fearing man hijacks language and uses it for his purposes. We don't have to look any further than the author of this psalm. David had moments in his life when he stopped fearing God and employed deceitful words. One of those moments was shortly after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He spoke with Uriah. He called for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to come home from battle. He spoke with Uriah and he instructed him to go to his house and wash his dirty feet. However, David couldn't care less about Uriah's dirty feet. What he wanted was for Uriah to sleep with his wife Bathsheba so as to provide a cover for David's adultery. His wife's pregnancy could be attributed to Uriah's three-day pass. Deceitful words are evidence of not fearing God. Third, a man's actions can also reveal that he has no fear of God. The second part of verse 3 states, he fails to act wisely or to do good. Solomon put it this way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Fools do stupid things, and in particular, fools do stupid, evil things. Go back to David's adultery. Since Uriah wouldn't sleep with his wife, David figured he needed to get rid of him. And so he told Joab, his military leader, to put Uriah in a battle position that would assure he would be killed. Not a good action. David had come out from under God's authority, out from a healthy fear of God, and his actions proved it. Fourth, a man's thought life is another indication that he has no fear of God. Verse 4 reads, even on his bed he plots evil. He commits himself 
to a sinful course. Ralph Waldo, uh, the headwaters of our words and actions are, the, are our thoughts, our thought life. Ralph Waldo Emerson put it this way. He said, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. It all starts in the thought life. Absent of the fear of God, a man will think himself into trouble. Sin is prevalent in my life. Don't look so innocent. The Bible tells me sin is prevalent in your life as well. I battle it moment by moment. With God's strength and wisdom, it stays at bay. But when I cease battling it, when I cease looking to God for help, it bites me. When I allow my mind to wander, when I entertain evil ideas, when I begin, to idol, when I begin idolizing some idea or something or someone other than God, I'm in trouble relationally and morally. It's then that I've begun snuffing out the fear of God in my life. That's David's point in the first part of this psalm, the first four verses. In the words of astronaut John or Jim Lovell of Apollo 13, Houston, we've got a problem. Actually, all of mankind's got a problem. And our problem is that sin is in the soul's DNA. We're damaged goods. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We're the walking dead, physically alive, but soulishly dead. It sounds horrible and morbid, but we're deceiving ourselves if we soften our description and believe that man makes mistakes, but he's basically good. We're deceiving ourselves if we think we're soullessly alive, but every now and then we need recharging, like an electric car. The Bible doesn't paint that picture. Here in Psalm 36, in Romans 1, Romans 3, and countless other passages, the overwhelming thrust is man's sin, his rebellion, his opposition to, to the rule of God in his life. That opposition is the default position of our souls. We're physically alive, but soulishly dead. No fear of God. It began with the first man and woman who were created sinless in nature, but they rebelled. As a result, their bodies and souls were corrupted, and that corruption has been transferred to the whole human race. This truth can be illustrated by a jello mold, a tin pan used to shape jello. If you tap the tin pan with a hammer and put a dent in the side of it, every subsequent form of jello made in that tin pan will reflect that dent. When our first parents sinned, it put a dent in their bodily and soulish DNA. And ever since, we've all come out of our mother's wombs dented. Our bodies aren't as God created them. We die. And our souls aren't pure. 
as God created them. So, this first part of Psalm 36 describes the nature of man. But David then does a hard pivot, and he starts to talk about the nature of God. And he identifies four aspects of God's nature, God's essence. He, these four aspects of God's nature lay the groundwork for understanding God's plan to rescue man from his sin. So, not only is Christmas about my sin, but it's also about my Savior. Let's look, take a look at this passage. Verses 5 through 7, it reads, Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. The first aspect of God's nature that David identifies is God's love in this passage. In the original language, this love is described, and we sung about it earlier in the service, it's described as everlasting love or a steadfast love. David uses this phrase, uses the phrase, it reaches to the heavens, implying that God's love goes on forever, way beyond what any man can imagine. Unlike man's version of love, God's love doesn't stop. Man says, I'll love you if, or I love you when you do such and such. Man sets conditions on his disbursement of love. God doesn't place conditions on his love. In essence, God says this about his love for man. I love you whether you are what you should be or not. Paul explains it this way in Romans. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he goes on to say, and when we were God's enemies, God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. That's radical love. The second aspect of God's nature that David identifies as his faithfulness. And similar to love, David declares that God's faithfulness reaches to the skies. This conveys that God's commitment to do what he says he will do is strong. He doesn't waver on his promises or his declarations. He, his promises to David are a good example. God promised David that the Messiah would come from David's lineage, and he would establish a forever kingdom. God didn't place any conditions of obedience upon that promise being fulfilled. The certainty of the fulfillment of the promises made rests solely on God's faithfulness. Just as God's love is unconditional, so is his faithfulness. He will do what he says he will do. The third aspect of God's nature that David identifies is his righteousness. Think holiness. Think rightness. Think absolute perfection. Think moral excellence without even a hint of a minor fault. David uses mighty mountains to describe God's righteousness in this passage. 
God's righteousness is a preeminent aspect of his nature. God is a righteous being. All of his actions, all of his decisions, all of his ideas, all of his plans are right and perfect and good. There's not an ounce of wrongness in his nature. The last aspect of God's nature that David mentions is justice. David uses the word picture of the great deep to describe justice. It conjures up an image of complexity. When, where complex justice issues overwhelm men, they are no match for the mind of God. His judgments are accurate. He sees everything perfectly and rules accordingly. So, love, faithfulness, righteousness, justice. Would you want any other kind of God? His righteousness and justice form the moral boundaries of life. His righteousness demands submission to his design. His justice measures the cooperation with his design. And his love and faithfulness feed the relational atmosphere in which life is to be lived. When you break down man's lack of fearing God as David did, pride, words, sinful actions, wicked thoughts, it's not hard to conclude that man is in trouble. The sinfulness of man has earned him a trip to the courtroom, to the, to the judge of the universe. All men have violated the righteousness of God, the scriptures teach. All have broken away from God's design. Either passively or actively, all have rebelled and in so many words told God to get lost. And God's judgment is guilty. The punishment is death, eternal separation from the creator of life. And in light of the holiness of God, the punishment fits the crime. So how does a holy, righteous, just God, who is also loving and faithful, address this reality? How could God satisfy his just, righteous nature and at the same moment express his love and faithfulness to those he made in his image. Enter Christmas. God's justice demands a penalty, a payment, a punishment for man's rebellion. God's love and faithfulness offers a solution. One who had no sin would take onto himself man's sin and offer himself up to pay the penalty of death and thus satisfy the righteousness of God. It's hard to get our arms around that level of love. Perhaps a human illustration will, will suffice or help. The date was February 1941. Maximilian Kolbe, a Franciscan priest, was taken and placed into that infamous concentration camp known as Auschwitz by the Nazis. The reason? He had been helping Jews escape from Nazi terrorism. Like other prisoners, he was subject to beatings and lack of nourishment. One day, a prisoner in the camp escaped. That was good news for the escapee, 
but bad news for the rest of the prisoners. The bad news was that the Nazis had a rule that if a prisoner escaped, the escape would be paid back at the expense of the lives of 10 prisoners. The rule was enforced. 10 men would be rounded up randomly and herded into a cell where they would die of starvation and exposure as a warning against future escape attempts. All the prisoners were lined up outside the barracks. Ten men were randomly chosen. A Polish Jew, Francis Gajanasek, was one of those chosen. At being chosen, he cried, Wait, I have a wife. I have children. They need me. Father Colby stepped forward, got the commandant's attention, and said, I am a priest. I have no family. I am old. I'll take his place. The Nazi commandant agreed to let the priest take Francis Kajanasek's place. And so Father Kobe was marched into the cell with the nine others. Father Kobe finally died after going two weeks without food and water. That's love. That's sacrificial love. That's Christmas love. You see, in order for Jesus to take onto himself the sin of the world and die, paying the penalty of death, he had to take on human flesh. And so the Son of God took on a sinless human nature and body when he was conceived in Mary's womb. He didn't jettison his divine nature. He added a human nature. One person with two natures. He was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, worked for more than 10 years as a carpenter with his father, and then he traveled for three years around what is today Israel. He taught, he preached, he healed, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God. Over those three years, his followers claimed he lived an impeccable life. During those three years, he acquired enemies because he challenged the religious establishment. He challenged the power brokers. He called out the hypocrites. He claimed to be on a mission. He said at one point towards the end of the three years, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He offered himself up to be crucified. Roman authorities thought they were ending the life of a political leader. The Jewish leaders were convinced they were getting rid of some competition, even a false messiah. But Jesus knew differently. He knew he was assuming the responsibility and accountability for the sins of the world. He would offer himself as the Lamb of God who John the Baptist claimed would take away the sin of the world. And so he died a horrible physical death. But the wrath of God that was poured out on his soul would prove to be even more horrible. For a time, and no one knows how long, Jesus, the Son of God, experienced being separated from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. For all eternity, the Son of God had known nothing but absolute and holy fellowship 
among the triune God. While being judged guilty by his father and experiencing the sting of death, the Son of God suffered the agony of separation from perfect love. He was crucified on Friday. He was raised from the dead on Sunday. Having paid the death, having paid the death penalty that you and I and all mankind deserve to pay. After appearing on several occasions to his followers, he ascended into heaven. And 40 days later, he sent the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to indwell believers, to be their comforter, their counselor, to empower them to make disciples of their Lord around the world. The 200 of us here this morning are part of the fruit of that effort. And this is the season of the year when we remember. We remember then celebrate the birth of the Messiah Jesus. We remember some of the circumstances surrounding his birth. The angels' visits with Joseph and Mary. The birth of our Lord in a barn. The shepherds. The wise men. The escape to Egypt and finally settling down in a town called Nazareth in the district of Galilee. These are the details surrounding Jesus' birth. The motive, the motive is much grander, eternally grander. And the motive was love. For you know the most noted verse in the Bible that captures this motive. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. My sin my Savior, the cross, our sin, our Savior, the cross. The lyrics to a song captures this grand motive and tells us what Christmas is all about. It's entitled, It's About the Cross. Are you familiar with it? The lyrics read, it's not just about the manger where the baby lay. It's not all about the angels who sing for him that day. It's not all about the shepherds or the bright and shining star. It's not all about the wise men who traveled from afar. It's about the cross. It's about my sin. It's about how Jesus came to be born once so that we could be born again. It's about the stone that was rolled away so that you and I could have real life someday. It's about the cross. It's not about the presence underneath the tree. It's not about the feeling that this season brings to me. It's not just about the coming home to be with those you love. It's not all about the beauty in the snow I'm dreaming of. It's about the cross. It's about my sin. It's about how Jesus came to be born once so that we could be born again. It's about the stone that was rolled away so that you and I could have real life someday. It's about the cross. It's not about all the good things in this life I've done. It's not all about the treasures or the trophies that I've won. It's not about the righteousness that I find within. It's all about his precious blood that saved me from my sin. Beginning of the story is wonderful and great, but it's the ending that can save you, and that's why we celebrate. 
It's about the cross. It's about my sin. It's about how Jesus came to be born once so that we could be born again. It's about God's love nailed to a tree. It's about how every drop of blood that flowed from him when it should have been me. It's about the stone that was rolled away so that you and I could have real life someday. It's about the cross. I began this message by reading the lyrics to What's It All About, Alfie? If Pringle was in voice this morning, I would have Brian sing that song because he probably has it memorized. But the last stanza of that song goes like this. I believe in love, Alfie. Without true love, we just exist. Until you find the love you've missed, you're nothing, Alfie. When you walk, let your heart lead the way, and you'll find love any day, Alfie. I believe in love too. We all believe in love, but letting your heart lead the way is not how to find love. Psalm 36 reviews David's insight into the heart. He was reminded us that our hearts are filled with pride, with deceit, with uh, uh, thoughts of malice and greed. Our hearts need to be renewed. We have all spiritual heart disease, and the great physician needs to do a work in each of our hearts. Our hearts need to be renewed. When he does touch a heart, he fills it with newness, with an appreciation of God's goodness, a sense of his forgiveness, and a desire to love God and to love our neighbor. If Bert and Hal asked me what I thought of their song, I think I'd reply, love your song, beautiful melody, great lyrics, except I'd change the last part of the last stanza to read, True love is found in Jesus Christ. Don't let your heart lead the way. Instead, give your heart to the one who died. In him, you'll find the way. So what's Christmas all about? It's about the love of God that motivated him to send his son into our world to die for the sin of mankind. The Advent theme of love is perhaps the most important theme of the four. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we're before you. Uh, and your word tells us we stand in need. Stands in need of forgiveness. Stands in need of a new heart. Stands in need of new life that only you can give. Father, thank you for your word that reminds us of the meaning of Christmas, what it's all about. I pray, Father, for myself, for my family, for everyone here this morning, that you would prick our hearts and not allow us to get caught up in the trappings of this time of year, but rather we would see through, Father, and we would see my sin, our sin. We would see a Savior 
that we would see that Savior who died on a cross, was buried and raised on the third day. And because of who he is and what he's done, we can walk through this season with an appreciation, Father, of that work on our behalf. Thank you, Father, for your love. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.